you pray with me? There's none like you, Father. And by speaking your name, we're ushered right into your presence in front of the very throne of God. We understand, Father, that you declare you desire to be known. And so you've made yourself known through your word and through your acts, through incredible deeds. And yet many of us would confess we really feel like we don't know you. God, we desire to know more of your nature and your character and your way so that we might be more faithful to you, to understand better what you intend for our lives, how you want to show up and be the God who uses us as you use the saints of old. Father, we want to know our purpose and our destiny. So we desire to study your word in such a way that it infiltrates the very fiber and core of our being. God, that can only happen through the work of your Holy Spirit, your Spirit who gives us enlightenment and insight into things that are a mystery to the world. So Father, we take this time right now that we set before you, asking that you would be found in and through everything that's said. It would all be for your glory and your honor and for the name of of the mighty soon-coming King, King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray and ask this. Amen. So picture this, a state trooper driving his patrol car, cruising down the highway, decides to pull off near an embankment so none of the traffickers will see him. He backs his car in against a slight hill and waits for the oncoming victims. Sorry if you're a police officer. I know there's a number of you here, but uh, state troopers are, are fond of pulling their cars off where they're barely seen. And so as you come over the rise, you go, ah, <laughs> there they are. And you tap the brakes very quickly. And uh, one particular state trooper did that very thing, pulled his car off to the side near an embankment, backed it in and put out his radar gun and began tracking the traffic coming over the hill and smiling every time somebody would tap their brake and slow down. And looking off in the distance, he could see one car moving towards him, coming over the rise of the hill at a very slow pace. So slow that he put his gun actually from the traffic that was in front of him way down and picked up the car at 27 miles an hour. He thought, what could this be? Watching this car come closer and closer to him, he kept the radar gun on it and sure enough, 27 miles an hour. So he pulls his patrol car out thinking, though, well, they're just as dangerous as somebody speeding. You can't go less than 45 on the interstate highways. So as he pulls up, he puts his flashers on, pulls them behind the car, and pulls them over. He walks up to the car, and as he approaches it, he sees five elderly ladies inside the car, three in the back seat and two in the front seat. And they look white as a sheet. Their eyes are huge. The officer walks up to the car, taps it on the window, and she rolls down the window. And immediately before he can say anything, the driver says, I'm so sorry, officer. I know I was driving the speed limit. It says 27. I'm driving 27 miles an hour. <laughs> and he chuckled to himself and said, ma'am, um, that's the highway marker, 27. And um, 
I've got to tell you, you've got to move along at the pace of traffic. And, and slightly embarrassed, she said, no problem. I'll, I'll get back on the highway and drive at the right speed limit. I, I really thought it was 27. He looks in the car at each of the passengers and he said, man, before I let you go, I've got to ask, these ladies riding with you look scared to death. What's going on? She said, oh, officer, they'll be okay. We just got off Highway 127. <laughs> would you not have loved to seen that car (laughs) see what you believe really does determine what you do what you believe determines what you do she believed it was 27 so there was a response that question what you believe about God determines what you do next is what's framed our entire study the whole series the destiny series what we believe about God determines what we do next how you view God which is very difficult in our society to view God appropriately because you are surrounded by individuals who have an inaccurate view of God I can surmise that very quickly just by showing you a couple statistics. Let me show you up on the screen where most Americans are at. First of all, let's start with the the high percentage, 9 out of 10 Americans. 90% of adult Americans own a Bible. Wow, pretty good. 8 out of 10 Americans call themselves Christians. Really, 79% of Americans call themselves Christian, which none of that matches up with the next statistic. Look with me up on the screen. 44% contend the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same spiritual truths. How do you rectify that? How do 80% of American Christians who own Bibles and say this is the Word of God and say they're Christians also say that the Book of Mormon and the Quran are different expressions of the same spiritual truth. That is totally contrary to what the Bible says. Now, here's how I believe that happens. Because I've had lots of conversations with friends who don't know Jesus, and I'm sure many of you have as well, most individuals, many Americans, view this as a history book. It's full of interesting proverbs. It's full of interesting anecdotes and a story about an ancient people. See, a history book requires nothing from us. A history book puts no ethical requirement upon your life. But as soon as you call this the word of God, you claim it to be absolute truth, that's when people back off and say, oh, don't be imposing your values on me. Even though God says, this is my word. So as a history book, it's not threatening. As the word of God, it's very threatening. What you believe about God, as evidenced in this book, really does determine what you do next, what your next step is. I can help frame that for you by taking you all the way back to the book of Genesis. Here's what we're going to do this morning. Because the Destiny series was the destiny of a man about the life of Joseph, 
The destiny of a nation about the nation of Israel and the destiny of the world, the book of Revelation, I wanted to put all that together in one short story for you this morning. So that's what we're going to do is look at the three short stories that encompassed each of those chapters. But to frame it, to take you back to where it all started, I'm going to take you to Genesis 3, first of all. The conversation between Lucifer, the fallen angel, and Eve in the garden. Look with me up on the screen at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die It's the first thing he did. He challenged the word of God. Indeed, A-F is the Hebrew word. Indeed, has God really said, F. Really? Did God really say that? The God who gave you this paradise? The God who holds nothing back from you? He really said you can't eat from that beautiful tree? No, see, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you're you're not gonna die. You're gonna be as God. So the first thing he did, he challenged the word of God. Second thing he did, elevated her status to make her feel like you can be God. See, the way the rest of the story goes is God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you surely will not die, for you will know good and evil. You will be as God. He lied to her, but that's the framework in which most approach the word of God. When God says something, individuals say, whoa, that doesn't apply to me. God didn't really say that. So they challenge the word of God. When we challenge the word of God, we challenge God's authority over our life. Look with me up on the screen at 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God meaning that everything that's written here is God's word. So to challenge it is to challenge God's authority. So let's go to our three short stories this morning. First, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. If you're new to church or you weren't raised in church, this is not the Joseph who is the father of Jesus. This is a Joseph who lived way back before the time of Moses. Joseph who wore the coat of many colors, the grandson of Abraham. The son of Isaac, uh, grandson of Isaac, the son of Jacob. So look with me up on the screen. You can try and follow along if you want to. Um, this will move very quickly, though. We're starting in Genesis 37. Remember, Joseph is in the ultimate blended family. He's got four different mothers in this family, married to one man in this Middle Eastern culture. And you talk about family dynamics. Look what's going on here. Genesis 37.2. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. Along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. These are his stepbrothers. Dad's got multiple wives. And he's bringing back a bad report about them. 17 years old and he's running daddy's business. And he's got big dreams, if you remember the story. God gave him dreams about what his future would be. But in order for God to fulfill those dreams, he had to take them through some very deep water. And we discovered that because God was at work in his life, he became a target. You become a target when God's at work in your life? 
Absolutely. And these individuals recognized that God was at work in his life, although that's what they did not identify it as. They just knew that they wanted him out of their life. So look with me on the screen at verse 18. When they saw him, meaning his brothers, from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. He's wearing the coat of many colors. They can see him from a long distance. It's like blaze orange. They see him from a distance. They recognize, they plot the scheme, but Judah recognizes there's no profit in killing him. Let's make some profit. Look with me on the screen, verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Anybody taken to Egypt as a slave would never be heard from again. Carried off to Egypt, their plot will never be discovered. Except they forgot one thing. They forgot that God was at work in his life, and God is about to bring something about. So because they forgot that, they didn't understand this is part of God's plan. Look what happens when he arrives in Egypt. Genesis 39.1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him. Now it's not important that Joseph is associated with a successful man. It's important that God is with Joseph. Look with me at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. This entire story is not the story of Joseph's success. It's the story of God working out his plan, his faithfulness to Joseph. Joseph had something going for him. Verse 6, we find out that he's Yaphe-ayin, Handsome in form and appearance. If you were here on that particular Sunday, you learned that that word, that phrase, Yafe Ayin, means he was slick. He was good looking. And he knew it. He had good looks going for him. He also had been elevated to a position of authority. He had everything. The master who bought him gave him responsibility within the house and gave him authority over his money Over all the other servants, the only thing he said to him was, you may not touch Mrs. Potiphar. But Mrs. Potiphar also thought Joseph was Yafe Ayin, and she wanted him. Joseph refused her advances, refused to lay with her, even though she tempted him day after day. And when he finally refused her enough, she accused him of rape. And so Joseph finds himself thrown in the dungeon, in the prison. Look with me up on the screen, verse 20. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and there he was in the jail. Now, Joseph believed something about God, that God would be faithful to him if he was faithful to God. He'd done what was right. He honored God, and yet he's in the dungeon. Where's God in all this? How could God possibly be in these circumstances? Where's God in the dungeon experience? Look with me on the screen, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. He's right there. He's in the midst of the trials. Just because the circumstances don't look like it, God's right there. Now, after two years in the dungeon, there's a turning point that takes place. The Pharaoh 
Pharaoh Sesotris II of the middle dynasty of the Egyptian kingdom has a dream, and it's a horrible dream about the future of his nation, and he can't understand what's going on, cannot interpret it. This Pharaoh who's in power, who's in control, is getting irritated because no one can help him. Someone in his court tells him, there's a guy, there's a guy in the dungeon who knows how to interpret dreams. Let's bring him in. So now for Joseph, mind you, he doesn't know any of this has happened. It's a dungeon day just like any other dungeon day. The bars clank on the jail door. He hears the chains. He hears the tin pans from people getting fed. And the next thing he knows, he's standing in a shower. Somebody's hosing him off. He's getting shaved. They're taking off the prison jumpsuit. And now he's standing before Pharaoh because Pharaoh said, go get him and bring him here. Look with me up on the screen at verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, mind you, a young man. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I'm not the one with the answers. He's been in the dungeon for years. This guy is his ticket out. All he has to do is say whatever he thinks, and he's free. But Pharaoh says, interpret my dream because I've heard that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph's response, it's not on me. But I know the one who can. I know the God who gives the interpretation of the dreams. See, what you believe about God really does determine what you do next. Joseph believed God would be faithful, and so it determined what he did next. Look with me on the screen, verse 26. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The dream said the stock market was going to hit 14,000. The Dow and the NASDAQ will never have experienced that kind of climb like Joseph was talking about to Pharaoh. Egypt was going to be incredibly blessed. But he said after the seven years of the incredible benefits, there's going to be seven years of famine. And the famine is going to make the best years before seem like a very faint memory. Now, because Joseph was faithful to God, Pharaoh did something in response. Look with me on the screen, verse 39. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people, the entire nation of Egypt, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Did Joseph get a new view of God because of his faithfulness to God? What you believe about God determines what you do next. Joseph took that step, trusted God, and God honored him. This set the stage for the arrival of all his brothers who thought he was dead, who came to Egypt and found that their brother was still ruling. Joseph was destined to go to Egypt. It was his destiny to set it up for the entire nation of Israel to be in Egypt so God could lead them out as a mighty army. 400 years later, though. Look with me for this last verse from Joseph up on the screen. Genesis 50, 23. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. 
But God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. That's a pretty shocking request. When you guys leave, dig me up. (laughs) Take me with you. Did he believe that God was going to be faithful to his promises? He had no idea it was going to be 400 years later and that they were going to be in bondage. But here's what Joseph understood. He's part of a much bigger story, one that continues on. So what he believed about God caused him to have a reaction. It caused what he did next. Look up at the screen at Hebrews 11.22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Even in the New Testament, the writers are still writing about what Joseph did by saying, God's going to get you out of here. Just trust him. Eventually, I want you to carry my bones with you. Do you know if you watch Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, there's a scene in which people are leaving the city of Ramses and they're carrying on their backs this mummy and a child looks and says to his grandfather, Grandfather, who is that? And he said, those are the bones of Joseph. Look with me up on the screen, Exodus 13, 16. God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. 400 years later, Charlton Heston is standing on the side of the Red Sea. Okay? Arms are spread out wide. All of Israel is standing on the seashore. And they've got to each make an individual decision. Number two in the short story, Moses leads these people. You know the story. The ten plagues are behind them. They're standing on the Red Sea. Moses has his arms spread open wide. And every single individual person has to make the decision, do I really believe that when I step down into this ocean, These piles of water are not going to come crashing down upon me. Do I really believe that? Because what you believe about God determines what you do next. And they took the step. Look with me up on the screen. Exodus 14.30. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Do I really believe God If I do blank, he's going to be there. These people had not had a whole lot of experience with God. They're trusting that God's going to show himself. And so, a few chapters later, God shows up and talks to Moses and says, Moses, hey, come here. I'm going to come down and visit the people. I want you to prepare them. For three days, they've got to clean themselves. I don't know if they're really dirty or what the deal is, but God said, I want them to be consecrated, not just washing the outside, but preparing their hearts. So for three days, God says, get them ready because I'm coming down. Look with me on the screen, Exodus 19.10. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments 
and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, Moses has already seen God at this point. He's had some encounters. Can't see his face because no man can see God and live. That's what scripture says. But he's seen the presence of God. God tells him this, and he comes down to the people and says, hey, you guys want to see God? You want to see him? You got to do this. So they prepared themselves for three days because their view of God impacted what they did next. They want to see God. Yeah, we want to see him. So they prepare themselves. But the third day arrives, and suddenly thunder flashes of lightning. The mountain in front of them explodes with fire, and they hear the rumble of God descending upon the mountain. Look with me up on the screen, verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Remember, these are the same three million people who have just gone through the ten plagues. They've seen the hand of God wipe out Egypt. They've seen God pile the waters of the Red Sea. They've seen Egypt, the Pharaoh's army, dead on the seashore. And now they're trembling at the presence of God. Nothing prepared them for this moment. These people are freaked out. You'll see it in just a minute. Because creation, we found, responds to its creator. God descends. Creation comes alive. All the elements, fire, smoke, lightning, wind, earthquake, everything takes place right there because of God's presence. Think of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gives up his spirit after he says it is finished. What happens? the earth begins to rumble. Jesus is resurrected. What happens? The earth begins to rumble. Second coming, we learned about this in the last days. What happens when Jesus returns? Earthquakes. The earth responds to its creator. So all of nature responds, and these individuals have an outburst of raw human fear. Look with me on the screen, Exodus 20:18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. This same God who rescued them they now have a new view of. They're experiencing what it means to be in awe of God. So much so that how they view God determined what they did next. Let me show you their reaction. Normally here at New Hope, if you're new here, we give lots of words with definitions so you can understand what the Greek and Hebrew are saying. I'm only gonna do it once today, and here's the one I want you to see. Ekphobos. This is what it means when they trembled. Do you see the definition? Frightened out of one's wits. Ever been frightened out of your wits? I've talked to guys in the military. I had a cousin who was in the Green Beret in Vietnam. He described what it means to be frightened out of your wits. Ek phobos. They understood who God was. What I was, I shall be. 
I am always. So we jump fast forward all the way to Revelation. What's the first thing God does when he shows up with John? He says, here's who you're hearing from. Look with me on the screen, Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the Ancient of Days, the one whose purposes succeed no matter what man does. Now, mind you, John, who's writing the book of Revelation, has never seen Jesus like this. He walked with Jesus on the beach. He wore sandals. John saw Jesus wear sandals. John threw out a fishing net with Jesus. He's never seen this kind of an image of God. And it changed radically how he responded. Look with me on the screen at what John did when he saw God. Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Did John the apostle get a new view of God? What he believed about God determined what he did next. So just to condense this way down, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 4 because there's whole lots of chapters we could look at, but I find this view of God in Revelation chapter 4 to be awesome. It changes your view of God. Perhaps it'll help you remember what we looked at a few months ago. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2, John finds himself right in the very throne room of God. Chapter 4 and verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like jasper, like a jasper stone in sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So he uses that word again that get, you became familiar with in Revelation. Behold, I-D-O-O-U, I do. Behold, wow, this throne is amazing. It's astonishing. And that it's standing in heaven. The word associated with that means that it's fixed, it's permanent. Everything that utters forth from this throne is unalterable. It cannot be changed. So John sees this amazing throne standing in heaven and that there is a throne speaks to this consistent nature of God. What he says he will do, he will do. It cannot be altered. Do you notice that it says he who was sitting, he's in a posture of reigning. That's the phrase associated with that. He's reigning because something amazing is about to happen. But now we get an eyewitness description of the appearance of God. Look at what John wrote. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. A jasper is a diamond. God is a crystal clear image body that refracts light. But a sardius in appearance is ruby red. So John's looking at this amazing being on this throne and he sees this crystal clear refraction but it's ruby red and sardius speaking of the wrath of God. But then, interestingly, it's surrounded by this rainbow. Look at the description. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. When's the last time we heard of a rainbow in Scripture? All the way back to the time of Noah. And the rainbow was used to demonstrate God's faithfulness. What he says he will do, he will do. What I was, I shall be. 
So John sees not a half of a rainbow like we do here on planet Earth. He says it's encircling the throne and it's green in appearance. So he sees this amazing creature, this being, God, that he can't describe. He keeps coming up with the words like on the throne, surrounded with this green hue, and something happens at the center of this throne. Look with me on the screen. Ezekiel described it. Ezekiel one twenty seven. And there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. So this beautiful red refraction on a diamond-like being surrounded with a green emerald glow with brilliant, unapproachable white light. That's what Scripture describes. And then John notes this detail, verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Sounds just like Mount Sinai. Everything the Israelites experienced. Verse 6. And before the throne was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures. Verse 8. Day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. John struggles just like we do, and he keeps saying something like, but it's like this. The Old Testament prophets actually saw the same thing. Look with me. Moses saw it, Exodus 24. They saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Ezekiel saw it, 122. There was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. They're trying to describe the indescribable. But what we can get our heads around is this phrase. They cried out, holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, when a phrase description is used once, it's remarkable. Just to say, holy. To say, holy, holy, is barely heard of. It's a double emphatic, meaning it speaks of the character and nature. This is the only place in all of Scripture where you will hear holy, holy, holy mentioned when it refers to God. Isaiah saw it and John saw it. And it was so powerful that it causes the temple walls to shake. That's what Isaiah experienced. Look with me on the screen, Isaiah 6.3. And one called out to another, meaning the angels, the seraphim, and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And now we find out what happens in God's presence when these individuals cry out, holy, holy, holy. Look with me at verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. 
So the praise of the four triggers a response from the 24. It's like going from a quartet to an ensemble. And when the ensemble does it, then the angels kick in in chapter five, and then the instrument section kicks in, and then all of creation begins to praise God. That's the response when the individuals in heaven say, you're holy, holy, holy. And all of creation responds. says, you're worthy. And we're, we're going to give you our crowns because you alone are worthy because you created everything. They're praising him for his creation, what he's done in the past, what he does in the present, and what he will do in the future. That's the view of God that John's getting. It's an expression of the throne's purpose. This unveiling that you're seeing is given to us by the work of God so that we will understand his nature and his character in a new view. I hope through the destiny series, the destiny of a man, the destiny of a nation, and the destiny of the world, you've got a new view of God, of who he is. I feel like saying to you, like Moses did to the children of Israel, do you really want to see God? Do you want to see him? Because he's in here, and he's expressed himself. Are you ready to see God? Are you ready to be in his presence? Because truthfully, what you believe about God determines your destiny. It really does. For those here who are new to church, or perhaps you've never heard truth taught like this before, you need to be confronted with one particular verse. How you view Jesus Christ determines your destiny. Look with me on the screen at Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus as Lord is kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S, and it means supreme in authority, absolute ruler. So my Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as kurios, supreme in authority, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved because what you believe really does determine what you do next. That's what Scripture is saying. That's for those who may not necessarily be there yet. For the church, the greater multitude, the hundreds who make up new hope, you might be in the Egypt of your life You might truly be right where Joseph was at in the dungeon experience wondering, how in the world, how in the world can this possibly be God's plan? You might be just like the children of Israel standing on the seashore saying, well, I really do believe in you, but man, that's a big step. See, what you believe about God really does determine what you do next. It's more likely, though, that you're like John in a very lonely, desperate situation. He's banished to an island because of what? Because of the witness of Jesus Christ. He's found himself separated from all that he knew. And he's looking for God to rescue. And if you don't think so, you don't know human nature. John's on Patmos, a Roman garrison prison. I have no doubt he was asking for God to rescue 
But instead of God rescuing, he says, no, John, I'm gonna use you right where you are. As hard as it is, you're gonna be used. In each case, church, when God shows up in Joseph's life, in the Israelites' life, and in John's life, he is consistently the same. What he was, he is, he always shall be the God who brings rescue and hope and deliverance. But this truth I reserve for the last. He is also the God who believes he will do exceedingly abundantly greater than anything you ask or imagine. You don't have to take my word for it. Take God's word. Look with me on the screen. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen exceedingly abundantly. It means more than you can imagine. I can imagine some pretty big things and God says you can't even begin to imagine what I want to do in your life. I am able to do far more exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine. I close with this story. Last week, both my sons serve with a church down in South Carolina. Derek's part of the worship team and Adam's part of the video production team. This church in 10 years has gone from 108 people to 14,000 people. They have five campuses. Last week, Senior Pastor Perry is standing on the platform and says to the church something that they've kept to themselves for quite a while. They've been planning a sixth campus in Charleston, South Carolina. They want to launch it in January of this year. Perry said to the church, I didn't really plan on doing this this morning, but I'm going to tell you right now, this is what we're planning on doing in January. We're going to launch a church, another campus in January. However, it's going to take a half million dollars. They've done five of these now, so they know what it costs to get the gear, to put the staff in place for a whole year operating budget. This is what it's going to take. So this is what Perry says to the congregation. I know that there's several individuals in our church who could write a check today for a half million dollars and never miss it. With that, he closed. That afternoon, the tellers are counting up the offering from the day. In there is a check for a half million dollars. Now, that's cool in itself. What happens next is amazing. Perry calls the guy who gave the check to the church. He starts to thank him and the man stops him over the phone and says, don't, don't thank me. This is the evidence of God in my life and I'm just giving back what I know I was, I'm supposed to do. God allowed me this week to sell my construction business. I've built it to a very large empire, made a lot of money with it, and now I've sold it off. I came to church this morning with a blank check. This was my request of God. God, I know you want me to give something. You're gonna have to have someone in leadership say an amount. Wow. Does your God desire to do exceedingly beyond all that you can ask or imagine? It does not have to be money, church. It might be your health. It might be your marriage relationship. It might be your job. Your God, who was and is and always shall be, desires to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can ask or even imagine.
Would you pray with me? We confess from our hearts, Father, that we really do believe that you're in control of everything. And it is our destiny one day to stand before you. You determined several years ago to raise this church up. And in the three short years that we've seen this existence, Father, you're meeting the needs of individuals who are halfway around the world. Orphans in Africa, missionaries in Thailand, single moms just blocks away from here who need to care for their kids. God, you continue to do your work in our midst because we believe that you want to accomplish your perfect, perfect, perfect nature and purposes. So God, as a group of people who gathered here before you, we just want to say, you are in control of all. You determine our destiny and we surrender to you. God, you are truly our Messiah. You are our rescuer, our healer. You are the one who brings hope. And we are confident that you desire to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or imagine. God, I ask this, that you cause us to be bold to respond to what we believe, to what we say we believe. Cause us to take that next step boldly. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.